just want to make sure you're all paying attention. Well, let's pray together before we uh, jump into God's word. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. Some of us excited and anxious and prepared and ready to hear from you. Others of us just barely getting ourselves here. Some of us carrying burdens. Some of us weighed down. Whatever the case, you brought us here and you're present with us. And your word is living and active, able to pierce through all the things that might be in our way. So we ask you to speak to us now through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been tracking along with us, you know that we're in a series uh, called The Gospel in Genesis. So a little review. We're, we have two weeks left in this series. The whole series has been, uh, we, you might think of the gospel, if you're new to this, as uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels. But those are four authors telling one story, the story of Jesus. And we tend to think the story of Jesus starts in Matthew chapter 1 or John chapter 1, but it doesn't. It begins way back in the beginning in Genesis. The story of Jesus is a story of, of God's plan to redeem the world. And so Genesis chapters 1 through 3 lay the foundation for all the stuff we need to know about who God is, how we're supposed to relate to him, who we are as made in his image, how we're supposed to interact with each other in the world, what's gone wrong with the world, and what is God's plan to set it right, which is what we're talking about this morning. I have a friend who's a recovering alcoholic. He's been sober for over 20 years. And he, I asked him one time, why do alcoholics always, even if they've been sober for decades, call themselves alcoholics still? Why not move on from that? He said, because I spent years denying that I was one. And it's when I finally owned that, that I began to make progress and get sober and find freedom. We talked about that a bit. And he said for him, the story was that he was uh, meeting with an old friend and mentor of his who happened to be a former coach, complaining to him about the, his marriage, about the way his wife was behaving, about his job and his boss. And his friends and mentors said to him, they are not the problem. You are. It's your drinking. It's your issue. And until you face it, none of that stuff will ever change. So that was when it began to change for him. Why do I tell you that story? Because the last week we looked at what's wrong with the world. Genesis chapter 3, we call it the fall. Not autumn, my favorite time of the year, but the fall. When, when all, everything went wrong, when we rebelled against God, rejected his law, went our own way. And until we face that the problem is actually not out there, but in here, God's solution, God's cure, won't make much sense. Won't do much good. So last week, what's wrong with the world this week in part, and next week, what is God's plan to set it right? Because our culture is constantly telling us that the problem's not you, the problem's them. The problem's the government. The problem's the policies. The problem's the Supreme Court and, and their beliefs and, and, and judgments. The problem's the economy. The problem is patriarchy. The problem is uh, social injustice. The problem is the educational system. Now, I'm not saying that the government and the economy and the Supreme Court and uh, the racial injustice don't exist and don't need reshaping based on God's principles. They do. But fundamentally, the Bible's telling us the fundamental issue that's in your way of living a full life is not out there. It's in here. And we need to recognize that if we're going to hear what God says he's going to do about it. Years ago, 1909 actually, the London Times wrote uh, to the five most popular authors in Great Britain 
G.K. Chesterton was one of them, asking them to submit an essay answering this question. What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton now famously wrote back, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and then he went on to write a whole book called What's Wrong with the World, so I find that ironic. His point's a good one, though. You want to know what's wrong with the world? It's in me. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his famous book, The Gulag Archipelago, said the, the line between good and evil does not run between institutions and governments. It runs down the center of every human heart. And that's at the heart of what Genesis 3 is actually telling us. It's, Genesis is upfront about the mess in the world and the problem in our hearts. We are the ones who disobey. We are the ones who reject God's boundaries. We're the ones who hide from him and blame shift. And he's the one who pursues. I'm gonna to read to you a portion of the scripture we read last week, Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And as, we, as you look at this and we read through this, I want you to pay attention to two things. What is it that Adam and Eve do? And what is it that God does? Because this is what happens immediately after they have rebelled against him and eaten the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, what did Adam and Eve do? Did you notice? They cover up. They sow fig leaves and try to hide from each other, cover themselves. They hide from God in the trees of the garden. When God comes looking, what do they do? Hide and blame, rationalize, shift away from themselves. And Adam is by far the worst. I mean, they're both guilty before God, but can we be honest about this? Adam is the worst. He was the one that God gave the command, you're free to eat of all the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the center of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. He heard that from God. And when Eve is deceived, we're told that she gave some to her husband who was with her. He wasn't off in some other part of the garden not paying attention. He's right there saying nothing. Men, your first sin is passivity, silence, doing nothing when you ought to be taking a stand for what's true and what's right, protecting those God has given you to intercede for. He does nothing. And that's why God comes looking for Adam. He calls out to Adam. Where are you? Adam says, oh, I was afraid. Why are you afraid? And when he asks, have you eaten of the tree? It sounds like well, I used to talk to my kids. Did you touch that I told you not to touch? <laughs> and what does Adam say? The woman. And you gave her to me. He blames the woman and God. You laugh, but this is tragic. It, she did, well, I mean, really, God, you made her. How far has he gone from, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, to now it's like, well, it's your fault, God. You made her. We chuckle, and it is sort of funny, but it's also horrific and tragic for what follows from this. 
God, so what does God do? They blame, shift, and hide. What does God do? He comes looking for them. He calls out to them. He confronts them. All of the initiative is on God's side. This is crucial to understand the gospel in Genesis. We're the ones who sin. We're the ones who rebel. We're the ones who hide. We're the ones who blame and cover up. God is the one who pursues. He's always the one who initiates. And he's the one who's been offended. We are the offenders. Have you ever had the experience in your life where you've heard a song, a worship song on the radio, or maybe a moment in church, or a sunrise, or some moment in your life where you just felt the, the undeniable reality of the presence of God? Anybody? Maybe it's been a while, but a bunch of more hands than that should be going up, hopefully, right? That's God's initiative. He's the one that's initiating. Or maybe you've had this overwhelming sense of guilt uh, that you can no longer keep this secret. You've got to confess. You've got to deal with it. That's God's initiative. He's always the one who pursues. We're the ones who run away. This is what he does. God moves toward them and toward us. And we're going to see that in the verses that follow. God asks this series of questions, all directed to draw them out, right? Because he loves them. What is this you've done, he says to the woman. Where are you, he says to Adam. Why does he ask? We've said this before. Not because God suddenly has misplaced Adam, or forgot where Adam was. He's omniscient. He asks for Adam's sake. When Adam blames the woman and blames God, he turns to Eve and says, what have you done? And to her credit, she really doesn't do the same thing Adam does. She doesn't blame the way Adam does. She's still guilty, but she simply says, the serpent deceived me and I ate, which is true. She was deceived and she did eat. Doesn't excuse it, but at least she's being honest about what went down. And then God turns to the serpent, which we're gonna see next. When he turns to the serpent, there's no more questioning, there's no more discussion, there's no more like, let's, let's, God is no longer like lovingly, caringly, graciously drawing them out. He's now gonna speak words of judgment. When he talks to Adam and Eve, it's where are you? What happened to you? He's, he loves them. He's patient with them. He's kind with them. He's direct and he's going to confront them, but he's doing it for their good. When it comes to the serpent, all the, the conversation changes. Verses 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. These verses and those that follow we'll get to next week when God pronounces the consequences on Adam and Eve themselves, we refer to as the curse. But curse is an unfortunate term in English because you might think of it as like a spell or a hex or something, like God is cursing them. Like God has this bag of curses and blessings and he decides, ooh, you've done wrong. Let's see what curse I can put on you, on your belly. Like that's not how it's working. God is not uh, arbitrarily cursing. He's simply speaking out the inevitable consequences of our rebellion against him. What happens when we turn away? And what happens here for the serpent? He's declaring the inevitable consequences of sin and rebellion against him. Look at verse 14 once more. 
The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all, all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's a couple of questions I have. Maybe you have them as well. Why is it a curse for a serpent to be on its belly? Aren't snakes already there? What is this eating dust? Aren't they already down there eating dust? And, and how did the serpent get in the garden? And where did it come from? What's really going on here? Remember in school, uh, well, this will date me a little bit. When I was in school, I should say, uh, the teacher used to say, the answers are in the back of the book. And I would look to the back of the book and just write down the answers and make up some work so they think I did it, actually. Right, don't tell anybody that, right? Maybe you don't have that now. But when I was in school, the answers are in the back of the book for your problems. Well, actually, when it comes to this, these questions, the answers are in the back of the book. Let's look to Revelation chapter 12 for a moment, verses 7 through 10. And now this is, uh, you're going to get a little picture here of we're talking about where did the serpent come from and what's really going on here. Now war arose in heaven. Michael, that's the archangel, and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, we don't have time to dig into a whole theology of Satan and evil here, but a couple things to make you aware of, key points for us as we deal with this Genesis 3 passage. The ancient serpent, and Ezekiel 28 will tell you that that ancient serpent was in the Garden of Eden, is also known as the dragon, Satan, and the devil. The deceiver of the whole world. What it says first, he deceives Eve. She says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And he's the accuser. He's been a deceiver and accuser from the beginning. How did he get there? He was thrown down out of heaven. Isaiah 14, uh, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Isaiah 14 will give us this picture of, of this rebellion in heaven. Now, we don't get one clear passage that lays it all out. It's beyond our comprehension to a degree, but we piece this together, and essentially it looks like this. At some point, pre-creation, in heaven, the angels were crea are created beings worshiping God, and Lucifer, the bright dawn star, the beautiful one, the, uh, uh, among the chief of the angels, wanted to be like God, wanted to usurp God's authority, and led a rebellion against God. Does that sound familiar, wanting to be like God? And deceived a third of the angels. And there was this great conflict in heaven, and God wasn't going to have it. So he cast him down. To earth. So the conflict moves from heaven to earth. And this serpent, the dragon, Satan, the devil, now is doing the same thing on earth that he was doing in heaven, working against the purposes of God. He's a created being with limited power, but he is real. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Anybody ever read The Screwtape Letters? 
my people. There we are, right? Uh, it's a fictitious story about letters between two demons. And demons don't write letters. But it's a profound insight into the, the way the spiritual forces of evil actually work in our lives. He says in the introduction to this, there are two equal and opposite errors we can make when it comes to the devils. Spiritual forces. Number one, to disbelieve in them entirely. And this is a temptation for some of us. Come on. Come on, Pastor Jeff. Red pitchfork, t- tail, and horns. Give me a break. The devil's not, this is just something ancient people made up to explain why people do bad things. The other mistake we can make is to believe with an unhealthy obsessional interest in them. Seeing a demon behind every rock. Both are a mistake. So what do we do as a Christ follower? We acknowledge what Paul says in Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the principalities, the authorities, the forces of this dark world. Spiritual warfare is real. There are forces of evil at work in the world. And and Satan and his powers oppose everything good God wants to do in the world and in you if you're on the side of God. But on the other hand, he's a created being with limited power who is already defeated. So we don't fear him. We don't walk around cowering, looking for a demon behind every, everything that occurs that goes against us. Satan wants to deceive, distract, tempt, and accuse all to work against the purposes of God. He's real. We shouldn't ignore that. We see it here in Genesis chapter 3. But Romans 16 verse 20 tells us, Jesus says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's already defeated. And this brings us to the last verse, and I'm going to spend the rest of our time on this one verse, Genesis 3, verse 15. And I get to draw some things for you. Aren't you excited? I want to talk about this verse because a scholar has referred to this as, if I can get this thing to work, there we go. They refer to this verse as the Proto-Evangelion. Proto meaning first, euangelion meaning gospel, good news, the first gospel. The first hint of the good news of what God will do to redeem and restore the world comes not in John 1 or Matthew 1, but all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So we've got to talk about what's happening here. A little, little background here. We know that this rebellion, God set the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, right? And he commanded the man and the woman You're free to eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you must not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And what do they do? You know the story, class. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't know if it was an apple, but if it was, it must have been a green apple because they're the worst. (laughs) Right? They eat of the apple. They eat of the forbidden fruit. Now, uh, just to make some things clear here, God is speaking here. I will put enmity. This is God speaking here. We'll put him up here. God is speaking to the man and the woman, or to the serpent, excuse me, about what he's going to do, the consequences. And we also see here a couple of pronouns to make things clear. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This you here is clearly the serpent, Satan, the dragon, our enemy, the devil. God is speaking a curse of of judgment on our adversary. Now, if we go back to this for just a minute, this is interesting. So God makes Adam, 
and Eve in his image to be in unbroken relationship with him and with each other. But because of their rebellion and sin, this, what happens is there's enmity, right? I know I gotta keep changing colors because I'm obsessive like that. <laughs> enmity. So because of our sin and rebellion, we have a broken relationship with God. There's enmity between us and God, and it's our fault. That's where the conflict lies. But in this judgment, what does God say? I will put enmity between you, Satan, and, what does he say? The woman. This is Eve. God is shifting the enmity where? I've got to keep switching here. The enmity shifts to where? There. This is profound. God's saying, your relationship is broken with me because of your sin. And the enmity is between us. I'm not going to let that stay. What is Satan trying to do? To get us on his side. To deceive, to distract, to accuse, to tempt, to get you off of the side of God onto his side. Because he opposes all that God wants to do from the beginning. And he's still doing it. And God said, not so. I will put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring. What's, here's what God's saying. He's saying to us, hey, I'm not your enemy. He is. I'm not against you. I'm for you. You're being deceived. You're being lied to. You're being led astray. I'm not the enemy. The enemy's real, but it's not me, God is saying. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman. This is the first hint of the good news. He's shifting the conflict. And between your offspring and her offspring. Now, then he also shifts then the pronouns. I don't know if you noticed this. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Her offspring lead to a he and a his. Who's this? You can't get this one wrong. It's not C.S. Lewis. I'll give you a hint. Who is this? Yes, this is Jesus. The seed of the woman. In fact, what's interesting is that everywhere else in Genesis, when it talks about seed and offspring, it's referring to the male line. The offspring of, the descendants of, the seed of Abraham, the seed of, of Jacob and Isaac. But here, it's referring to her offspring. Some, most scholars think this is a hint to born of a woman. The messianic prophecy. Or the virgin birth. By the, by the way, this, this whole verse here is kind of like the river. Does that look like a river, kind of? Maybe. The river from which all the messianic prophecies flow. All the prophecies about Jesus the Messiah coming down through us through the prophecies of the Old Testament, they all start here in Genesis 3.15. They're all flowing from this verse. 
in the beginning. This is amazing to think about. God, the first word of the gospel is from God to who? It's not a trick question. You should be tracking here. Satan. The first word of the good news of what God will do is spoken by God to the, our enemy. I will not let it stand. You will not win. And then he says, he, Christ, shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Sometimes your translation might say crush head, but the same, Greek, or the same Hebrew word excuse me, is used here, bruise and bruise, meaning there's a death blow coming. So let me try to draw this. Human feet are hard to draw, but I'll do it my best here. I don't think this is what Jesus' feet look like, but give me a break. Right? There's going to be something happening here. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Meaning, what, what God is saying is, there's going to be this conflict that's going to happen. Now, because of your sin and your deception and your rebellion, there will be a conflict. You will struggle against the powers of good and evil, of light and darkness. And that conflict is gonna last until it comes to a culmination, a decisive battle, a death blow in other words. It doesn't look like a very scary snake, but you get the idea. That, it's, that there's gonna be a a conflict coming, a death blow. And that's, that's real, right? There is a death blow. Jesus Christ will die on the cross. He does die. It's a real death, a physical death. He dies for us in our place. To, to do what? To forgive sin, to deal with our sin, to deal with what's between us and God and to conquer death, conquer the forces of evil, to set us free. So it's the Savior's heel, the venomous snake bites you on the heel, and it's not, that's gonna kill you if you don't get it dealt with. It's a real death. But it's the serpent's what? The reason that head is listed there is this is a final death, an ultimate defeat, crushing the head. Stomping it. I, I don't know about you, but like uh, snakes are among the top three things people are afraid of in the world today. They're like number one for me. I, I don't like snakes. I'm not afraid of too much, but I don't like snakes. My, my, old, my youngest son, Ben, when he was a little guy, he brought in like a, I think it was like a rat snake. It was a garter snake, but it was a little bit bigger than that. At least it seemed bigger in my mind. He brought it in one time. He's holding it like in the middle of it. It's flopping around. I'm like, ah! He's like, Dad, look what I found. And it turns around and bites him on the hand. And he throws it down. I'm like, ah! And I run away, you know, so... <laughs> We have these fear, what? God is, this is really, if we grasp what's being said here, we are the ones who rebel, we are the ones who sin, we are the ones who reject. And it's our, we're guilty before God. There are forces of evil working against what God wants to do. And when God begins to talk about the consequences of our rebellion, which we'll get to next week, the first thing he says is, I'm not gonna let this last. I'm gonna undo what you have done. And he speaks to our enemy, who is real. And he says, I'm shifting the conflict. 
and it's gonna come to a final culmination at the cross where I will give my life. There's a real death, bruising of the heel. But my death in the great reversal will mean your ultimate conquest. It's incredible what God is saying here. And I wanna encourage you with this as we get ready to wrap this part up. What this means for us, even when God is giving us the worst news about our own rebellion, there's a hint of hope and grace. Can you believe that for your own life? Even when you're facing the worst news, even if you're at your worst, your greatest guilt or shame, the worst thing that's happened to you, God can speak a word of grace to you because there's nothing he can't overcome. He has not already overcome at the cross. That, that's really the story we're living in. We talk about the foundations that Genesis lays for us. We are the ones who reject. We are the ones who run away. God is the one who pursues. And he will do all that it takes, including the giving of his very life, to achieve the victory that we could not achieve. To achieve victory over our failure. Next week, we'll talk about what God has to say to the man and to the woman and to all of us and how Genesis 3 closes. But for now, I hope you hear that word of hope over your life from the beginning. Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks, is not plan B. It's not something God came up with because it all went wrong. It was from the beginning his intent. I will shift the conflict and you will lose. He has already lost which means if you are in Christ, you have already won. He has won for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this ancient text which is beyond our comprehension and I know that I've only just barely scratched the surface of all that it entails and contains. But for all of us, we each carry burdens and guilt and shame and wounds I pray that your spirit would enable us to hear through the power of your word and the truth it contains that nothing is beyond your ability to redeem, to restore, and to take all that is meant for evil and turn it to good. We praise you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.
Think about those last lines. This we know. We'll see the enemy run and the victory come. We hold on to every promise you've ever made, God. Jesus, you are unfailing. Brothers and sisters, go in the grace of the unfailing Lord Jesus Christ, who is your victory. Trust him now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.